It's Friday, October 14th, and this is your CE Advance Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and I'm joined again by Neil Shearing, our Group Chief Economist. Coming up, we've got Julian Evans-Pritchard talking about the reshuffle of key economic and financial personnel around the Chinese Communist Party Congress, which starts Sunday 16th. But for now, let's talk about more local issues. Neil, we've just had confirmation. Kwasi Kwarteng has been sacked. Jeremy Hunt has been appointed the new chancellor. And the corporation tax cut that had been announced on September 23rd has been scrapped. Do you think this marks a turning point for the UK? Do you think markets will move on from the chaos of recent weeks? I notice yields have come down a bit, but they're still well above where they were on September 23rd. Well, they came down, it was a classic kind of buy the rumour, sell the fact, because they came down in advance of the U-turn and kind of in anticipation of it. And then almost as soon as the Prime Minister started to speak, they they began to creep back up again. We'll see where they where they ultimately settle. But I think it's fair to say that the UK and its government is not yet out of the woods. Credibility, particularly fiscal credibility, is easily lost but hard to regain. And I suspect it's, it's not just going to, going to be the actions of government and the substance of fiscal statement that we will get on the 31st of October. It will be the way that the, the new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, talks to the Commons, to the markets, the way it's delivered. The tone is going to be almost as important, I think, as the substance itself. Now, I know you're just about to brief clients about what's happened today, about what we can expect in the coming days, the coming weeks for for the UK and in all of this political uncertainty. But what has struck me stepping back from all this talk about about tax cuts was the note that you wrote during the leadership race. We said all these tax cut pledges are actually a distraction from the real structural challenges that the UK economy faces. What are the economic policies that a a ruling government in the UK, and I say that pointedly rather than a trust government, a ruling government, what should they be announcing rather than tax cuts for for the highest earners? Well, I think there was two issues. Actually, there's three issues with the the tax cuts that the trust government and Kwarteng initially announced. The first is the scale of them and the fact that they were unfunded, so there wasn't a a corresponding spending cut. So essentially, they, they were adding to borrowing at a time when inflation was already a problem, interest rates were already going up. So that just added more fuel to the inflationary fire. The second is that that they were done. The the the, the, cut, the tax cuts were announced on the basis that they would improve and raise long term growth prospects, but actually the international evidence on this is pretty weak. There's not much evidence that lower taxes, particularly when you're cutting from the levels the UK is at now, which is not particularly high by international standards, will do much to improve growth. So so the substance, there's no really substantive reason to think that this would improve growth prospects. And then the third point was the way it was presented. And what as much what the government didn't say is what it did say. It was presented in a way that basically said, look, the markets don't understand this. We understand this. We've got this. But they didn't talk at all about what they were going to do other than cutting tax to to improve growth prospects. And that's the point that you, the, the, I think you rightly you rightly make. When you look, take a step back and you look across all advanced economies, all of them have suffered a diminution of productivity growth and long-term growth prospects over the past 15 years. It's not just a UK problem. But the slowdown has been particularly acute in the UK, and it has been particularly acute since 2016. Now, we know what happened in 2016. It was Brexit. 
Since then, business investment has been particularly weak. The performance of the tradable sector has been particularly poor. And I think you, you've got to start to tackle those issues if you're going to really start to raise the long-term growth prospects of the economy. The other thing you've got to start to tackle in a more serious way is the growth of the labour force. The last time the UK economy grew at 2.5% in a sustainable way, in the early 2000s, the labour force was growing by about 1% a year. Now it's not growing at all, barely growing at all. So there, there needs to be a sensible plan about migration. There needs to be a sensible plan about getting some of the workers that have exited the labour force during the pandemic back into back into the labour force. So long story short, a coherent plan would do things to raise business investment. It would do, raise, do things to raise labour market participation. It would do things to raise inward migration. It would do things to improve skills and human capital. It wouldn't just talk about cutting taxes because frankly, they are, a, 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 like I say, a distraction. And of course, the trust government has done none of those things. Well, I think you're going to be probably going into a lot more detail on that in the briefing that you're holding with clients soon. But if I could just pull back a bit and look at this in a global context, this this whole episode of the past few weeks, it does seem to have awoken something, all this volatility we've seen in, in financial markets, in the gilt market, sense that, that these are unusually sharp moves in markets that shouldn't be seeing this kind of volatility. And it reminds me of previous episodes like LTCM at the end of the 90s, the, the money market funds at early in the global financial crisis when, when their NAV went below a dollar. Again, things happening in markets that, that people at the time said, well, this simply shouldn't be happening. To what extent does the unusual activity that we've been seeing in, in markets in the last week point to something boiling up similar to you know, the global financial crisis? It's a great question. It's a question we've been asked an awful lot by clients over the past several days. And I think the best way to think about this is to try and separate out financial crises that are based around liquidity issues and financial crises that are rooted in solvency issues. Now, the reason that the 2008 crisis was so painful was because it called into question and undermined the solvency of several large financial institutions at a time too when household balance sheets were extremely weak. So you, you, when, once you have solvency problems, there's losses somewhere in the financial system that someone needs to bear. And the job of government is to work out who bears that and how you show up counterparty counter confidence and make sure that the, the mechanisms of credit creation and the credit creation system do not freeze. In contrast, liquidity crises, which is essentially what we've seen in the UK over the past couple of weeks, they can be relatively easily solved by central banks by acting as a lender of last resort. And that's essentially what we've, we've seen the Bank of England doing, both initially through asset purchases. Those will end today as we speak on, on, on Friday the 14th. But now there's a repo facility where essentially expanded the, the Bank of England will accept, accept expanded collateral for that facility, so that there's mechanisms and ways that the that the bank can get liquidity into the markets and deal with those liquidity crises. So if you're thinking about what is the risk that there's going to be more financial accidents over the coming months and quarters as central banks continue to to tighten policy, I think the answer is it's highly likely. Rates are moving up from an extremely low level, and they're moving up, certainly in the case of the UK, but also to some extent in other countries, at an alarmingly rapid rate. So that's almost certainly going to cause problems in some parts of the financial system that are very difficult to anticipate in advance. Will it create another crisis on the scale of 2008? I think you would need to believe that it won't just be a liquidity crisis, but a solvency crisis too. 
And by and large, the financial, the major financial institutions are much better capitalized now. They're much better able to deal with falls in their asset prices and absorb those, yeah, their asset values and absorb those than, than was the case in 2008. So there's less vulnerability to a solvency crisis in, in, in the system. And that means that the chances of a repeat of 2008, I think, are, are still relatively low, but there will be some more financial accidents to, to come, I'm sure. I have to ask, so you talked about the difference between liquidity and solvency crises and, and central bankers as the lenders of last resort. Leo Brainard at the start of this week hinted that the Fed is more mindful of the global risks associated with its tightening campaign. But I think she also suggested that at the moment, the benefits of tightening still outweigh the, the costs of it. Given the idea that, that rates are continuing to rise, we had a hot CPI number from the US this week, and, and I think expectations for, for rates are even higher there. Do you see that the, the central bank calculus in terms of, of inflation versus financial stability, do you see that calculus shifting at all as we move further down the path of, of tightening? I think it probably will start to shift and it will start to shift for two reasons. One is that I think, or notwithstanding the hot CPI number that we had this week for the US, we are starting to see when we look further down the pipeline, evidence that price pressures are starting to ease. So if you look at the things like some of the survey evidence of firms planning to raise prices, that's come off. There's some signs that some of the heat is coming out of the labour markets, some Good shortages that have eased a lot. Labour shortages are starting to ease. So there's there's reasons to think that price pressures are easing, even if we're not yet seeing it in the CPI data. So that changes part of the central bank's calculus as that continues to feed through, I think. By the same token, as interest rates continue to move up and do so at a rapid rate, then I think the financial risks continue to only increase, that they're exacerbated and they become more of a, a headache. The, the New York Fed had a really interesting paper over the summer where it introduced the concept of R star starred. So we're just about familiar with the concept of R star. That's the, the neutral real rate of interest that, the, that keeps the economy at full employment. R star star is the, the real rate of interest that maintains financial stability. And the essential argument that the New York Fed was making is that there comes a point by which if you get real rates up too far, you start to threaten financial stability and that rate can change over time. And given, given that we've come through a period where rates have been ultra low, it's bid up asset prices everywhere, I suspect that by the time you start to get to nominal rates of 4 or 5% in most countries, you're going to start to see strains in, in the system in places, and particularly those countries that have seen large run-ups in house prices. So, yeah, the, the, the short answer to your question is yes, I suspect as, as, as rates continue to move up, we will start to see the calculus shift, both because inflation starts to ease a little, but also some of those financial vulnerabilities come slightly more sharply into focus. Okay, well, that's pretty complex, slightly gloomy, but but also perhaps laced with a bit of optimism in that picture there. Neil, thank you for talking to me. Have a great weekend, and I will speak to you next week. Thanks, David. The 20th Communist Party Congress will dominate Chinese headlines in the coming 10 days. It's now widely expected that Xi Jinping will get an unprecedented third five-year term as General Secretary, and that'll seal his grip on power. Our China team briefed clients on what this will mean for the economy in a drop-in earlier this week. The Congress also means that a big reshuffle of the Chinese leadership is getting fully underway. And here's a chat I had with Julian Evans Pritchard, our senior China economist, about what that reshuffle will mean for the key economic and finance positions in the government. So looking specifically at this idea of personnel change, 
And I'd like to start with uh, Liu He, who is, uh, he's been described as, as Xi Jinping's economic czar or, or his right-hand man on economic issues. He's a guy who wears many hats. He's, he's the head of the, the party office that deals with the economy and finance. I think recently he was put in charge of, of this semiconductor self-sufficiency drive. Uh, and he's now at retirement age, or at least the, the age at which officials like him conventionally retire. So what do you expect will happen with Liu He? Will he, will he step down? And if he does, who do you think is going to replace him? And how hard will he be to, to replace? Nobody knows for sure. You know, as you say, this, uh, the, the expectation that he will retire is based on unwritten retirement norms within the party that, that were introduced by Yang Zemin, partly just out of convenience to sort of push out some people from the, from the party to make room for, for his own people. So it's a, a rule that could potentially just be scrapped and, uh, to allow Liu He to stay on. But it's interesting that Xi Jinping decided not to scrap the retirement norms at the last party congress five years ago. And even Wang Qishan, who is considered a close sea ally, did retire from the, the party along the, those, those norms. So given that, my hunch is that Liu He probably will step down from the party. And that obviously raises the question of, of who could take over his role. Now, I think his role is a bit of a unique one. I mean, previously, prior to, to Xi Jinping becoming general secretary, it was the premier who was largely in charge of, of economic policy. Um, but under Xi Jinping, the premier Li Keqiang has been, been sidelined and more and more of economic policy is taking place not, or, or the top level of, of economic policy decisions are taking place not in the state council, but through these leading small groups, the, the key one being the Central Financial and Economic Affairs Commission, which is headed by, by Liu He, as you mentioned. And I think the creation of those leading small groups and Liu He's role in them is partly was a tool to sideline Li Keqiang. But Li Keqiang is on course to retire. He's already said he's going to step down from his position as, as premier this coming March. And so Xi Jinping will finally get his pick of who to be premier. And that could potentially mean that he might want to restore some of the premier's previous influence and, and stature over economic policy. So I think it's not out of the question that the current roles of Li Keqiang and Liu He are, are uh, combined into one, and we get somebody who is more closely aligned with C taking on that role. So now, does that, sorry, yeah. does that imply then that if if Li Keqiang steps down in March and Xi Jinping picks his guy as as premier, that that there could be a shift then back towards the the state apparatus and away from these party groups that have been leading the policy making drive. Well, my feeling is that the leading small groups will probably remain the sort of key venue for policy decisions, partly because I think Xi Jinping wants to be more personally involved in those decisions that, than previous general secretaries have. But within those leading small groups, the the you know future premier could potentially play a much greater role, and he could even have a sort of dual position of being both premier but also the director and the chair of of these leading small groups as well. So essentially, that's what I mean by combining both Liu He and Li Keqiang's role in, in, in into one potentially, and that would allow you to have an economic czar who who sort of has his feet both in those leading small groups, but also in directly in the, in the state council as premier as well. So on that basis, who who could be replacing Liu He or, or indeed the next premier? What is that? Who who could it be, and what would that imply about 
the the policy making outlook because I know that that Liu He has been there's been speculation or there's been reports saying that He Lifeng from the National Development Reform Commission could could be taking over in that in that role in that vice premiership and the NDRC has been associated with a sort of more traditional model of of, of of the Chinese economy versus perhaps more reformist, the more, more reformist ideas of, of other parts of the bureaucracy. So is there a risk that the whoever replaces Liu He in whichever of the roles that you're talking about could affect the policymaking process? I think it, it, it will depend to a large extent who that person is, how much power they have. There are various potential candidates for the role of premier, the most obvious being Wang Yang and Hu Chunhua, because they both tick the boxes in terms of their previous experience in the state council. They're also young enough not to sort of hit up against those, those retirement norms. Hurley Fung, you mentioned, is also a name that's been floated to replace Liu He. He doesn't have the sort of traditional credentials needed to become premier, but I suppose it's not you know, out of the question that he could be elevated to, to, to such a degree. To be honest, if Hurley Fung were to be given either, either role, even either Liu He's current position or the premier's or, or a sort of combined role, I would agree with you that that would be a slightly concerning development because as you, as you say, the, the NDRC sort of has a more sort of top-down approach to economic policy, a less market-driven one, and one that I think appeals to C's agenda, but one in w- that we think is not particularly helpful in terms of the long-term prospects for, for China's economy. So I think someone like Wang Yang, who's, if you look at his career history, had a greater role in sort of more free market reforms, would be a sort of more reassuring choice to replace Eva Li Keqiang or Liu He than but it's, it's, it's worth mentioning in all this that the current set of ex-senior economic leaders, not just Liu He and Li Keqiang, but also the finance minister, the PBOC governor, and also the banking regulator, Guo Shuqing, they all have what, you know, what are generally considered quite free market credentials, you know, that they were largely, with the exception of maybe Lil Her, because he has childhood ties with China, with C, they were all elevated into their position because of their technocratic experience and competence. And yet, even with this group of quite technocratic individuals with previous, who previously paid roles in sort of free market reforms, that group has not sort of been able to significantly constrain the sort of more statist approach that, that Xi Jinping's adopted. And I think with Xi Jinping really in the driving seat at the top of all this, even somebody relatively reformist taking these key roles at the coming for the coming five years, we shouldn't necessarily interpret that as ev- an evidence that we're going to get a shift uh, towards more market-friendly politic policies. And I think that, you know, that that's something to keep in mind. And I guess it's, it is worth stressing again that, that this is speculation. This is you know, Chinese party politics, it's very closed door horse trading. And no one really knows what the outcome will be until that Xinhua announcement on the day itself. So talking about the, the PBOC, if we could just talk, uh, focus on that for a second. I mean, it it was never going to be an independent central bank like the Fed or, or the Bank of England. But as, as you alluded to, it did once seem to have much more sway over policymaking within, within the state council. 
which is this senior decision-making body within the government as opposed to, or within the state, I should say, as opposed to the party. Based on what you're talking about, the, the sort of centralization of power under Xi Jinping, it may sound flippant, but does it really matter who who is appointed the head of the central bank? Are they just becoming more of a functionary within a very centralized authoritarian party state? I think it matters less and less in terms of the overall direction of policy, which is being set right at the top and over which the, you know, the PBOC governor probably has less and less influence. But I do think it still matters in terms of the quality of the day-to-day -day implementation of policy. And I think that will be the key thing to, to, to look out for here. So Yi Gang, who's the current PBOC governor, um, is due to retire at the MPC in March based on just the the, the, the normal retirement norms. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see who, who replaces him. Like I said, you know, he was elevated because of his prior experience as PBOC vice governor, not not so much because of his political ties. And, and I think that's the sort of approach that you'd want to continue to see going forward. I think the worrying trend uh, under Xi Jinping is that there's ev more and more evidence that promotion is being driven by political ties rather than sort of competence in terms of economic governance. And so if we do see a further shift in that direction with the, PB you know, the, 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 the PBOT of the governor becoming a more politicized position than it is now, that would raise concerns to me in terms of the, the, the quality of the day-to-day -day implementation of, of policy going, going forward, even if it doesn't make that much difference to the overall top-down policy agenda. That's all for now. Look out for more of our analysis on the Party Congress, not to mention our ongoing coverage of monetary tightening and its many risks on our website. Until next time, have a great week.